Welcome back to FinCast, the Financial Integrity Network's podcast series. This is Juan Zarate. Very happy to be back with you to talk about the state of cyber sanctions with Zach Goldman. Zach Goldman is a very close friend of ours, of mine, executive director of the Center on Law and Security at NYU School of Law, an adjunct professor of law there, senior advisor to Financial Integrity Network, uh, former Treasury official, former official at the Department of Defense, working with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, and has become a leading scholar on the issue of not just cybersecurity, but the convergence with sanctions and anti-money laundering law. Um, we're privileged to be able to work with Zach on a number of projects uh, and have been really excited to, to be thinking about this podcast to discuss the state of cyber sanctions and the convergence of cybersecurity and the anti-money laundering system. Zach, great to have you. Um, really excited to, to do this podcast with you and ex excited to learn from you. So welcome. Thank you so much, Juan. It's a, it's a great pleasure to work with you always and to be engaged in this conversation with you today. Thanks, Zach. I appreciate that. Um, well, let's start. Obviously, uh, the nature of cyber vulnerabilities uh, are increasing, the Internet of Things uh, increasing, connecting our devices, uh, supply chains, systems, uh, not just in this country but globally. The sophistication of actors are growing uh, more and more. You have state and non-state actors that are more involved in cyber criminal activity everything from low-level crime through espionage up to manipulation and warfare. Uh, you have uh, industries actually growing, both the av availability of malware and botnets and uh, things on the deep and dark web that uh, individuals can access, um, and the targeting of sectors, be they the banking sector, the healthcare industry, or others. Um, and the reality is that this is an era, era of cyber security, vulnerability, uh, and uncertainty. Uh, and into that, we inject uh, the issue of cyber sanctions uh, as both a tool and as a, as a, a part of that landscape that's Im impacting the way we think about security. And again, you've, you've done more writing and thinking about this than just about anybody. And so uh, maybe with, for the listeners, Zach, you can kind of level set for us how you think about cybercrime, cybersecurity, and the interconnection with sanctions. Thank you, Juan, and thank you for that fantastic overview and introduction. So I think it makes sense to first try and differentiate the cybersecurity landscape a little bit. So people engage in cyber attacks for all kinds of reasons. Hacktivism, uh, espionage conducted by state actors, the pursuit of national strategic objectives, what some people call cyber war, um, but one of the most common uh, is, is what I think about as financially motivated cybercrime. There's a whole network in the dark web, as you alluded to, where people can buy and sell data, whether that's credit card data, other kinds of personally identifiable information, uh, very sensitive intellectual property for money. Uh, and, and those kinds of attacks are by and large, although not completely, um, conducted by non-state actors. Uh, and so when you think about cybercrime and how to combat it, I think it's useful to think about two broad issues. One, at a conceptual level, but, but increasingly working its way into regulation, is to think about financially motivated cybercrime as a species of financial crime, just like other kinds of financial crime that we deal with in the AML-CFT system. 
And then second is a way to think about uh, cybersecurity sanctions in particular as a tool to deter uh, and, and punish uh, various kinds of financially motivated cybercrime. That, that's, a, that's a great sort of taxonomy uh, and way of thinking about the, the issue. I think one of the interesting things is, as we've seen these threats increase, um, uh, whether it's the ransomware cases that have become so prominent or the, uh, the Bank of Bangladesh case where uh, the North Koreans are alleged to have tried to steal millions of dollars uh, through the banking system. These are, these are tools and capabilities are growing more sophisticated, largely used to gain profit, uh, to, to make money, to defraud, to steal. Uh, but also to get access to data to um, potentially use it for profit, but also to access sensitive data, especially in the espionage context, and then potentially even to put systems at risk. Uh, we've seen that with some of the concerns around critical infrastructure. Uh, so I think having that in mind is, is important. And the, the overlay then of how to use sanctions and financial tools and, and that system to try to prevent those attacks, maybe even deter them, but also to respond uh, is an important part of the landscape and frankly, relatively new in terms of thinking. Um, and I just think back to the April 1st, 2015 executive order that President Obama signed uh, that used uh, financial sanctions, targeted sanctions authority for the first time really to implement a cyber sanctions regime um, to attack not just those that are hacking or engaged in the actual acts of, of cyber infiltration, uh, but also those that are directing those actors, those that are profiting from it, those that, that are engaged directly or indirectly with benefiting from that cyber activity, uh, which in some ways was the, was the cornerstone of beginning to think about the use of these kinds of sanctions uh, in the cyber domain. Um, how do you think about how this is evolving, the state of those sanctions, and, and where we're headed, Zach? Yeah, definitely. I think um, I think you know. Obviously, there was a lot in 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 the in in your kind of chapeau there, Juan. That I think is worth unpacking as usual. Very rich thoughts, and so I think it might make sense to take two points <clears throat> that you raised and talk about them separately because I think they illustrate both of the trends that that we were that I was that I was alluding to earlier. So maybe I can talk about the Bank of Bangladesh case for a minute as an illustration of this convergence of anti-money laundering and cybercrime. Uh, and then second, we can talk a little bit about the cyber sanctions EO that was first published in April of 2015 and then amended at the end of last year. Uh, uh, and I really think about that EO as the, as the potential cornerstone of a broad interagency strategy that could be developed and deployed to attack the infrastructure of cybercrime. But first, maybe it's worth talking our listeners through the Bank of Bangladesh case. And this was a really interesting uh, cyber hijacking that took place uh, early in 2016 in which uh, uh, cyber criminals often attributed to, to North Korea or actors acting on behalf of the North Korean government broke into the Bank of Bangladesh's systems and effectively stole their SWIFT credentials. And they used these credentials to initiate a series of fraudulent payment orders to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Uh, now, it, it just so happens that most of these payment orders, and there were 35 of them, were stopped. But a few got through. 
and something on the order of $101 million was sent to Sri Lanka, banks in Sri Lanka and banks in the Philippines. Uh, the Sri Lankan money was returned, some of the Filipino money was recovered, but much of it has not been. And, and $81 million is the amount that's cited that went to the Philippines. Ultimately, uh, the money was sent from the Federal Reserve to these banks in the Philippines and then sent to casinos in the Philippines and cashed out. Now, that was the, that was the structure of the attack. And the initial intrusion, the cyber attack that led to the theft of the Bank of Bangladesh's SWIFT credentials was by all accounts a very technically sophisticated operation. But from that point forward, I think it's probably more useful to think about this as an AML case and as a, an illustration of the way in which AML controls can fail and in the way in which effective AML controls are indispensable to uh, effective cyber defense, particularly for financial institutions. And I'll say FinCEN has uh, uh, recognized this also in October of 2016. It published an advisory that made cyber events and attempted cyber events reportable under the suspicious transaction reporting regime. And Zach, just, just for our listeners that may not be steeped in, in, uh, in this field, FinCEN is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, uh, the, the U.S. entity in the Treasury Department that is charged with administering the Bank Secrecy Act, gets reports from banks on suspicious activity, currency transaction reports, uh, and also acts as the, what is called the U.S. Financial Intelligence Unit. Uh, so it analyzes uh, suspect financial activity and shares that information with foreign uh, financial intelligence units subject to certain agreements. So just so people have a sense of, of the, the background as to what FinCEN does, because I think what you're describing is really interesting and important. Thanks, Juan. Um, um, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, we can talk a little bit later if you want about the, the potential role that an organization like FinCEN could play in an enhanced approach to, to countering cybercrime. But to return to the Bank of Bangladesh case for a minute, the moment that the attackers stole the SWIFT credentials, it stopped being a cybercrime case and started being a traditional money laundering case. Why do I say that? First, the payment requests to the Fed were, were out of character in its transactions with the Bank of Bangladesh. First and foremost, uh, these were payment instructions to individuals rather than entities, which is not typical for the Bangladeshi Central Bank, nor is it typical for the Fed. And there were other indicia as well that would have and should have indicated to the Fed that, that something wrong was afoot. Um, uh, and, and, and this illustrates the kind of core AML principle of knowing your customer, right? What does your customer do? What are the normal ways in which your customer interacts with your financial institution? And are you able to spot deviations from the norm and to address those through investigative steps? Second, the, the, the funds were sent to Philippine accounts at RCBC, a bank in Manila. Uh, and those banks, the, the accounts to which, they were, to which the, the, the stolen funds were sent, um, were opened in, by people using false names and false identities. Again, know your customer, customer due diligence. Now, no anti-money laundering system, no bank supervisory system is perfect. There will be instances in which uh, uh, even well-supervised financial institutions end up 
uh, allowing things like false identities to be used to, uh, to open accounts. But it's clear that the hackers knew that there were flaws and vulnerabilities, significant flaws and vulnerabilities in the Filipino AML system, and they took advantage of them. And the third flaw and vulnerability in the Filipino AML system that they took advantage of was the fact that casinos were specifically exempted from Filipino anti-money laundering rules. And so the core principles of, of AML regulation, know your customer and report suspicious transactions, didn't apply to Filipino casinos. And so tens of millions of dollars could be washed through those casinos and then take it out in cash without triggering any kind of reporting obligation or supervisory obligation on behalf of the casinos. So here you've got something that began with an incredibly sophisticated cyber attack that very quickly morphed into an AML case and in which the keys to preventing that kind of attack are the core uh, elements of an effective AML system that we've known about for decades. Fascinating, Zach. It's a great way of, of looking at it and great insights because I think most people, especially in the security field, who've looked at cybersecurity think of cyber vulnerabilities from a systems perspective and don't see it as a money laundering vulnerability or, or don't see the interplay that you just described. And I think that's a really uh, important insight that you've laid out. I, I think regulators in the, in the U.S. And, and certainly in other countries from the central banks in particular have begun to put more pressure on the private sector, the banks, uh, to ensure that they have appropriate cybersecurity systems and protocols, awareness, uh, governance. Um, but that's largely around the safety and soundness of systems. Less thought about how that interplays with money laundering and fraud, anti-fraud systems uh, that banks have in place. And becomes even more important as these kinds of cases uh, continue to evolve and they, the actors get more sophisticated and you get a blend of actors in the cyber criminal domain where you have organized crime groups uh, trying to make profit, trying to access information and data uh, and, and money. Uh, certain cases that have emerged in recent uh, uh, weeks, uh, you know, uh, botnets and malware that are intended to take over ATMs to give access to to money, uh, to the actors. Uh, and so the more that these, these actors blend, they, they get more sophisticated. They operate sometimes with state actors, like in the case of the Russian government, as we've seen, or the, or the North Korean government, or even the Chinese government. Uh, that creates major challenges. But your point about the blend and the overlap with money laundering vulnerabilities uh, is really an interesting one. Um, can you talk us through kind of how this plays out in the sanctions domain and what what evolutions we're seeing in terms of cyber sanctions? Because I think that's that's a fascinating component of what you've uh, what you've talked about in the past. Thanks, Juan. I'd be glad to. But before I do, I want to just return to a point you made and, and maybe amplify it a little bit. There was a small piece of the FinCEN advisory issued in October that called for greater collaboration between the folks and banks that worry about. Bank Secrecy Act compliance and anti-money laundering compliance and cybersecurity. And I think to this point, those two groups of people have uh, uh, both organizationally and conceptually thought of themselves as distinct. And I think what we're talking about here is a world in which those two have to work together because 
once an intruder is in the bank's systems, uh, or, or I should say until and shortly after they're in the bank system, it's a cybersecurity problem. But as soon as the money starts moving, it's an AML problem. And only by addressing those two pieces of the equation uh, together and holistically can you really uh, start to, to, to achieve strategic shifts in the defenses of financial institutions. Um, and, and, and Zach, just to that point, there, there's also just a tactical point that some of the malware that's, that's being designed out there is being designed to do two different things. One, evade controls uh, of all sorts, uh, be they sanctions, money laundering, fraud, or cyber. Um, and so the, the malware itself is being built uh, to work around these systems. And some of the more sophisticated attacks we've seen uh, in, in recent uh, weeks and months uh, has, have been uh, programs and malware that actually embed in uh, a, a, an organization's legitimate system. So for example, in uh, systems that actually update uh, software and, and computer files and embedding into that as a way of proliferating the malware and getting access to both information as well as to work around systems that are intended to control, for example, the movement of, of money or capital within an institution or within a network. So the, the, there's a tactical question here, too, that, uh, that I think cybersecurity experts and money laundering experts need to worry about together. Yeah, absolutely. There's no question that that's, that that's a really important component of the problem. Absolutely. Um, you know, a, 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 so what we're talking about is in some sense defensive in that anti-money laundering regulation and the like is about protecting banks and ensuring that they're able to effectively investigate and institute controls in the event of, of incidents. Um, sanctions, as, as you and, and our colleagues Chip and Danny have thought about for a long time, are in some senses the offensive counterpart to some of these defensive controls and measures that are put in place. And I think in that respect, they've got a very important role to play in the cybersecurity discussion, too. And I think that's true in two different ways. The first is we've seen sanctions um, deployed against states in order to try and dissuade them from engaging in, uh, uh, in, in un unlawful, undesirable behavior the way we've done in a number of other contexts, in the human rights context, in the corruption context, in the WMD proliferation context, and the like. Uh, sanctions have been used as a tool to shape behavior, uh, incentivize conformance with international norms, standards, and laws, and the like. Um, and, and a couple of times over the last few years, uh, we've seen uh, states punished for their direct or indirect engagement in cyber activities. And the, and the clearest examples here uh, is, the, is the early 2015 enlargement of the national emergency dealing with North Korea to include its malicious cyber activities. And this was a response to the Sony hack that took place at the end of 2014 and that caused very significant damage to the company. And then again, at the end of 2016, uh, various Russian individuals and entities, including the Russian security service, the FSB, were sanctioned for their involvement in the hacking uh, pertaining to the 2016 elections. So there, you've got uh, sort of a classic use of sanctions uh, against states in order to dissuade certain kinds of behavior and encourage other kinds of behavior uh, used with respect to cybercrime. And there, cybercrime of various kinds was uh, another kind of illicit behavior in which states engage. 
I think maybe one of the more interesting ways in which cyber sanctions can be deployed, though, is with respect to non-state actors. And so, Juan, you talked a lot about uh, cyber criminal groups that engage in various types of malicious activity that create or operate botnets and the like. And, and these groups, as we discussed, are, are by and large motivated um, by profit. And they exist in a highly differentiated marketplace in which different actors comprise different components of a complex ecosystem. So some folks are engaged in the identification of vulnerabilities. Other folks write exploits for those vulnerabilities. Some folks create botnets. Others operate and deploy botnets for a wide variety of purposes, whether that's denial of service attacks, harvesting credentials, or the like. Uh, and then others are engaged in taking data that's been stolen for a variety of, from a variety of means and selling it for profit in, in marketplaces on the dark web. Um, and these different uh, actors in the cybercrime ecosystem engage with, with each other in markets on the dark web, uh, often buying and selling services or goods, so to speak, uh, with virtual currencies, Bitcoin or other uh, even more anonymous currencies like Zero Cash or Monero. Um, and because these actors are motivated by profit, they are sensitive to the cost of their activities. And so if you do things that drive up the cost, of engaging in cybercrime, you can deter these folks from engaging in it in the first place. Um, the other thing that tends to characterize these networks is that they're often highly concentrated. Uh, and what I mean by that is some work uh, by colleagues of mine in NYU's computer science department demonstrated that a particular spam network, uh, a network of folks who sent uh, 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 large volumes of fraudulent email uh, basically enticing people to buy fake drugs or other kinds of fake goods like uh, uh, high-end bags and the like, um, used three banks in order to process 95% of their transactions. Uh, and so what do, these, what do these kinds of anecdotes tell us? They tell us that a uh, concentrated interagency strategy against cybercrime could identify various nodes in these networks, nodes that have asymmetric impact, um, and can undertake different types of enforcement actions against those networks, including sanctions, uh, to disrupt their activities and to raise the cost of engaging in cybercrime. So if you take the spam network that my colleague in our computer science department uncovered, um, one thing we know how to do really well in the US government is identify and squeeze dirty banks. Um, you go talk to those banks. You go talk to those regulators. Maybe uh, in an ideal world, the banks were unwitting of the kinds of illicit activity that was going on. And by paying them a visit and showing them the information that you have at your disposal in the U.S. government, um, you can enlist them as allies in the fight against cybercrime. Uh, if they were witting, perhaps you might go talk to their regulator, to the central bank or to the finance ministry in their jurisdiction and enlist their help in pursuing the kinds of illicit and unlawful activity that, that takes place. Um, and so if you combine this with uh, criminal prosecutions when appropriate, other kinds of regulatory measures like 311, civil forfeiture, you can start to pick apart the various components of these criminal networks and really start to make a dent in the cybercrime challenge. 
Zach, that's, that's excellent. Um, you know, what, what comes to mind just listening to you um, is um, how much sort of the mapping of these networks matters and finding sort of the key nodes and points of vulnerabilities or choke points, which is a, you know, a common technique in, in the application of sanctions in a strategic way. Uh, as you've been a part of uh, at the Treasury Department and, and we've worked on together. Um, it, it also suggests that the focus from a money laundering perspective on the role of gatekeepers um, or even third-party money launderers, which has been the subject of much law enforcement attention, policy attention, and even regulatory work, including uh, we've seen that from FinCEN in, in the use of Section 311 uh, to try to identify some of these uh, third-party money launderers. Um, that, that that's that's a model that could be applied here given the research that you've just described and the fact that you have in some cases some closed networks of illicit actors we saw that in the silk road case and the liberty reserve cases where you have these these dark markets offering all services to all comers uh, to engage in a whole range of illicit activity um, well that's a that's a self-selecting population and, and network that can be mapped uh, and targeted uh, as as law enforcement and, and Treasury officials did. So what you've described is really interesting, both in, the ter in terms of the use of some of these tools like sanctions or reporting requirements, but also in terms of how we think about even using similar models to think about the problem moving forward from a regulatory and enforcement perspective. Um, and I think what, what you've described is, is something that uh, we're probably going to see more of, not just from the U.S., but from other regulators. Um, is, is that something you hope see so. coming? And, and I think that uh, this is a real opportunity for um, the intelligence community in the U.S., the law enforcement community in the U.S., and the financial uh, regulatory community in the U.S. to come together and pool their various resources, source of information, and legal authorities to, to make a concerted dent in this problem. And there was a, a kind of example of this, of what I have in mind in the PACNET designation uh, that, that came down from OFAC. Uh, in September of last year, PACnet. Is yeah, a, explain a, what this is. This is fascinating, uh, Zach. Tell us what this is yeah. about. Absolutely. So, so PACnet was a money services business uh, that had been effectively engaged or, or, or provided the kind of financial rails by which a large-scale international uh, fraud operation had 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 operated for for many years. Uh, and and in September 2016, there was a concerted uh, takedown by the U.S. government in, in partnership with its foreign counterparts in which you saw simultaneously a set of criminal indictments against the folks that operated this network, uh, sanctions against some of the individuals and the entities involved in the activity, and civil forfeiture actions brought against uh, the funds involved. And, and I think this is kind of a model uh, uh, for, for what I have in mind uh, when we talk about the interagency strategy to attack cybercrime using sanctions uh, as well as other kinds of authorities. And there, you know, the, the criminal prosecution, uh, 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 at least with respect to individuals in countries with which we have extradition treaties or close law enforcement uh, uh, relationships, can take the most dangerous criminals off the streets, uh, can take the most prolific and, and, and proficient hackers uh, off the web, so to speak. Um, 
Civil forfeiture action can be used to try and return ill-gotten funds to their rightful owners, uh, or at least prevent them from being used for further uh, nefarious activities. And sanctions also can block the assets uh, and more importantly, freeze the entities that are engaged in this kind of activity out of the international financial system. Ultimately, even though a lot of these intermediate transactions in cyber criminal networks take place in cryptocurrencies, it's hard to buy a Maserati with Bitcoin. And ultimately, these kinds of actors have to cash out in some way and in some jurisdiction. Uh, and that will often, not always, but often involve some kind of bank or money service business linked to the international community. And so if we can identify the ultimate uh, nodes through which money is taken out of these cybercrime networks, we've got a whole suite of regulatory authorities and institutions that are able to take action. Zach, that's a great example. And thank you for uh, bringing that to the listeners' attention because I, I do think it, it points to the attempts by authorities to apply a range of tools in concert to go after these these networks that are taking advantage of cyber vulnerabilities as well as, to your point, uh, money laundering uh, vulnerabilities and, and using it for purposes of cyber crime, financial crime, et cetera. I think, uh, to my mind, that you know what you've described over the last few minutes here is really a, a conceptual, a, a different conceptual way of uh, thinking about the problems, and that is to say, look, th this is a blend of cyber, money laundering, financial fraud, sanctions, safety and soundness regulation that all has to be thought of together, both to understand the vulnerabilities that exist within institutions but and, and systems, but also then to figure out how to apply relevant tools and regulation and sanctions to affect, deter, undermine the networks that are engaged in what is high-end and perhaps even systemically damaging uh, activities. Uh, and I think that's a really important way of thinking about this in a framework that is going to begin to guide more of what the U.S. does and certainly what other uh, authorities around the world may be thinking. Um, what, what's your sense of where this space is going? I mean, I think you've laid out a lot of this already, but what, what should the listeners, especially in the private sector, uh, be thinking about in this space? What should they be worried about? Um, what could be done constructively in, in, in the context of cybersecurity vulnerabilities and cybercrime? Uh, thanks a lot, Juan. I, I really appreciate it. And I, I do think that there is a real potential here to, to start to think about these issues, as you said, on the, the kind of defensive and offensive, on the preventative and the, and the enforcement side as part of a whole. So maybe I'll start with what we should be worried about and then think about uh, uh, where, where things are going. So the thing that worries me most is uh, the marriage of state-level cyber capabilities with financially motivated cyber criminal activities. Uh, and and what, I'm, what I'm referring to here are things like the WannaCry ransomware attack a couple of weeks ago, where uh, uh, first let me just say a, a, a word about ransomware and what it is and why it's so pernicious. Ransomware is a type of malware that encrypts your files, makes them inaccessible. Uh, uh, but offers victims of these kinds of attacks the opportunity to pay the attacker usually a small sum of money, a couple hundred dollars, and at the institutional level, a couple thousand dollars, in order to decrypt or unlock 
their files. Uh, and, and ransomware attackers typically keep the sums relatively low in order to incentivize people to actually pay the ransom to get their files back. Uh, because if you hijacked my files and demanded $50,000 uh, for their return, I don't have that kind of money. I can't give it to you. But for $500, I might, because it's worth it to me to have uh, my digital life back, just like most of us keep our digital lives on our, on our computers nowadays. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, a particularly pernicious ransomware attack called WannaCry spread like wildfire around the world. And, and actually, there was a very scary incident in the UK in which uh, many of the computers in the UK's National Health Service were encrypted. And, and those hospitals were not able to render services to the public, obviously a very dangerous situation. Um, but it became, uh, uh, it became public uh, uh, by some great reporting by Ellen Nakashima of the Washington Post that apparently the NSA and, and other agencies had attributed this attack to the North Korean government. Um, and, and as I said, normally these ransomware attacks are, uh, are profit-motivated. They're, they're conducted by cyber criminals, often non-state actors. But here you had a government uh, or people acting on its behalf conducting a financially motivated cybercrime in a way that ended up uh, really affecting thousands or tens of thousands of folks around the world. Um, that, to me, uh, the, the, the deploying of state-level cyber capabilities for financial purposes is something that's, that's very, very concerning. I, Zach, uh, if I could just weigh in here, I, I completely agree with you. I, I also think one of the things that concerns me, uh, and it relates exactly to what you've just described, whether it's in the WannaCry um, uh, case or the Bank of Bangladesh case or even the Russian hack of the, of the U.S. election, um, is the fact that these actors not only have grown more sophisticated, no, not only have taken advantage of state actor capabilities, or often are the state actors themselves, but they've gotten to a point where they're on the brink of being able to affect uh, core systems and infrastructure. That is, most of these cases have been high-order cases of cybercrime. That is to say, they're, they're doing things for a profit. The Bank of Bangladesh case, to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. Um, but they haven't used the cyber tools as a way of manipulating or even destroying uh, the systems that they're infiltrating. Uh, we are on the precipice, I think, of something that is much more systemically relevant when a state or non-state actor or a blend thereof decides they're going to take that next leap uh, and try to impact systemically, either by uh, destroying data, destroying the system, or creating such mass distrust in the system, be it electoral, be it financial, be it um, information related, that it ultimately creates a, a sense of, of catastrophe almost, uh, and that, that that becomes the next step. That to me is, the, is what keeps me up at night in this space, and it relates directly to what you said. I just wanted to sort of to, to con confirm what you, your concerns, but also amplify them a bit. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that the moment we see very significant attacks that manipulate data as opposed to just copy it and exfiltrate it will be the time in which we see a very significant erosion in trust in our institutions. And that, I think, is really what folks are afraid of. I mean, there's also another concern, which is, uh, uh, to your point about the blending of state actors and non-state actors, there were a couple of indictments of Russian cyber attackers in March of 2017 that pointed out that uh, FSB intelligence operatives were piggybacking on the cyber attack infrastructure that had been created by cyber criminals operating for profit. So you have this kind of murky relationship, who's acting on behalf of whom, uh, but you also have a situation in which they're actually using shared infrastructure, uh, by which I mean attack infrastructure, yeah. uh, ways to get into systems and networks and to copy and exfiltrate data. Exactly, uh, and that, that then creates evidentiary problems, attribution issues, you know, who are the shadow brokers, right? Who is behind FIN7? Um, who is anonymous, right? The, these core questions in the cyber domain where we've gotten much better at attribution, obviously, to be able to indict, uh, designate, uh, target uh, as a result, but still uh, this question of the murky world that you've described uh, creates lots of challenges and lots of opportunity for obfuscation, as we've seen in the context of uh, what the Russian government has said about their involvement in the electoral hack. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I, I guess it's incumbent on us to find some note of optimism on which to conclude. Yeah, we have uh, to. Otherwise, the listeners aren't going to come back to FinCast, Zach. <laughs> so help us. Obviously, the number one priority. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, if there's a silver lining, I think it's awareness, right? That, that more and more, it's impossible to be uh, a, a business leader these days or a leader of a government agency and not be aware of the importance of these issues uh, and not be aware, uh, you know, if you're in a commercial enterprise, of the importance of investing in effective cyber defenses, and more importantly, uh, the importance of arranging your internal governance procedures uh, in such a manner that they can effectively manage the risk and effectively manage relationships with the outside actors that are necessary to tackle your challenges. And here I mean law enforcement agencies and other actors in your industry that are facing the same set of challenges. And so if you're a bank, uh, you know, the financial services uh, sector, I think, is probably the most sophisticated. Uh, and there are all kinds of institutions like information sharing and analysis centers, ISACs, that have been set up to enable banks to share information with each other. I would say, Juan, that if our view uh, prevails that cyber, cyber crime is a, is a form of financial crime, there's all kinds of other legal authorities uh, that could be used, like Section 314B of the Patriot Act, uh, to facilitate information sharing among enterprises and the government. So I think that the, the future is bright uh, in the sense that more and more folks are aware and more and more th folks are being creative about the kinds of collaborative enterprises they're setting up to manage the threat. That's right. And, and me as a coda to that, Zach, and a note of optimism, I think the private sector realizes they're at the center of the storm here, and, and different sectors and institutions not only are improving their own systems, but they're collaborating in a more dynamic and aggressive way. We've seen this with the banks, of course, um, and we've seen this as well between the public sector, intelligence authorities, law enforcement, and the private sector as well. There's lots of sensitivities in the post-Snowden era about what that looks like. Uh, but that's clearly where we need to head. And uh, some of us, as you know, Zach, I've, I've written a little bit about this, have argued for 
uh, a slightly more aggressive model, a cyber privateering model, where we even think about things like letters of mark and reprisal to think creatively about active defense models in extreme cases. So I, I think there's a lot of room for growth, collaboration, dynamic information sharing that begins to take stock of what is a more dangerous, more dynamic, and uh, more state-driven cyber criminal landscape than ever before. Um, Zach, any closing thoughts? Uh, maybe uh, you know within a minute or so. Any any last words of wisdom for the the audience? Um, well, first and foremost, thank you very much for having me. I've, as always, Juan, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you, um, and, and it's a real honor and a pleasure to be able to be included in the FinCast. Um, thank you, Zach. We're we're honored to have you. It's uh, likewise always learning uh, lots from you. So, and I know I know the listeners have uh, as well. Thank you so much. I, I would say just. Uh, watch this space. I mean, uh, I, I think that there, the, the, the developments on the law, governance, and policy side aren't moving quite as quickly as developments on the technological side, but, uh, but the speed of technological innovation and the excitement and the technology uh, uh, of defense uh, and of collaboration, I think, is spurring uh, faster innovation in the legal and policy issues and in the institutional issues than than we've seen before. And so I think uh, the world will look very different six months and 12 and 18 months from now. And, and, and you know, I think you and I both hope to be able to make a, at least a little bit of a positive difference. Yeah, you are, Zach. You're, you're a major thought leader in this space. We're going to continue to rely on you heavily to keep us informed and uh, hopefully the listeners. And we're going to come back to this theme over and over again. Uh, we're going to see it in the context of the Russia debate, North Korea, uh, Iran. We're going to see it with transnational organized crime. We're going to see it with respect to fintech and how we think about the regulation of the space. So you're absolutely right. This is a dynamic period. And for those who are uh, listening, who are students, or thinking about a field to get involved in or to learn more about, uh, this is it. And for those who want to learn from the best, I would recommend going to NYU School of Law to learn from Zach Goldman, uh, who, as you know, is the executive director of the Center on Law and Security there. Uh, Zach, great having you with us. Thanks for your time. And uh, on your behalf, I'm going to thank the listeners for tuning in to this latest edition of FinCast, the state of cyber sanctions. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Juan.